The capacity to move to new paradigms of perception is a creative possibility in human life, and it is the basis of the concept of divine forgiveness. It is called the waste space between clarities. Uh, who is that from? What's that from? Can you guess? Uh, no. Aviva Zornberg. Oh. That's, uh... <laughs> I thought maybe you would. I wasn't paying very much attention. That's why I said, who was that? Because I was just like vamping oh, yeah, before yeah. I got. So, but uh, yeah. That's a, would you just say it one more time? Just now this time I'm really, I mean. Really? Because now that you know it's Aviva, you want yeah, to listen to it? Yeah, now I'm going to yeah. Yeah, it's not me. No, oh, no, I was like you too, yeah. <laughs> the capacity to move to new paradigms of perception is the creative possibility in human life. And it's the basis of the concept of divine forgiveness. It is called the waste space between clarities. That is really good. I like her. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, hey, welcome everybody. I'm glad that you um, all came here today. It's uh, a lot of people we haven't seen in a while usually do uh, show up around the end of Epiphany. It's more of a Lent crowd, I think so, yeah. So uh, we're moving into Lent. Uh, Ash Wednesday, is this Wednesday? And. Uh, we aren't having a service as House of Mercy, but we that can. we're invited to join Bethlehem with their service. It'll be at 5:30. There'll be the imposition of ashes. There'll be communion. So please come to that if you want to start your Lent with Ash Wednesday. Yeah, 5:30, Ash Wednesday. PM. PM. That's actually a good question. That is right? a good question. Yeah, <laughs> PM for sure. Um, hey, it's good to see you out here again. Are you? Uh, is this isn't your last Sunday for a while, is it? One more. One more. Okay, oh, that's good to hear. And uh, to have all the band, we got somebody new on the piano. Got Mr. Paul Wonder joining us yeah. on the keys today. Thank Fantastic. you, Paul, for being here. Yeah, good to have you. And I don't mean to throw this on the band, but I think maybe you could probably pick it up. But I don't know if any of you know this, but uh, it, our head usher, John Carney, it's his birthday today. Yeah. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear John, happy birthday to you. And John, thank you for all that you do, and I have to say you look Pretty good for 85. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good. All right. Well, I have one more thing I want to say. Um, House of Mercy youngsters are going to take a very little field trip today out to the very little library over there. And so when you go down for your class, wear your boots and your coats. Yes, it's going uh, to be a good one. And it is just really right to the there, curb. Yeah. So. But fun. Uh, oh, big fun. Yeah. Uh, this is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Won't you please join me in the prayer of invocation? God of mercy, there are powerful men and the powers and principalities are out in the world flexing and swirling. Let us carve out a place where we can find peace here for this hour. 
where we can relax in our weakness and our need. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you all. Let's exchange the sign of peace in a socially responsible way. Well, we actually were able to get somebody to do special music for us today that wasn't me, which was nice. Mr. Henry Brandt, our own young uh, strings player over here, has agreed to play some tunes for us. Thank you. 
Won't you please join me in the prayers of community? I'll end each prayer with God in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for the victims of violence, of war, for all those suffering throughout the world. We pray for those people who are in power, who wage these wars, commit these acts of violence. We pray for those in power in our own country who perpetuate the violence in our cities, who perpetuate systemic racism and continues victimization of the poor, the outsider, the unwelcome. God of mercy, it can be so overwhelming. God in your mercy. God of mercy, fill this room with your love and that we can feel it and that we can be overwhelmed by your hope, that we can be real believers in your mercy, an impossibility for light inside us, outside, in our cities, through the world, that we could wake up to good news and feel hope, and share hope. Fill us with your love and your mercy that we could have enough to leave with it and walk it around all week. God, in your mercy. We pray for those who are in need of physical, spiritual, and emotional healing. Those who are continuing to suffer from COVID, continuing to suffer from the symptoms long COVID. We pray for all those who are caring for the sick. We pray for those in our lives who are dying. Comfort them. Be real, present to them. We pray for those who are mourning the death of a loved one. We pray for those who are in prison, those who are prisoners of addiction. Pray for those of us with mental illness. We pray for those who are profoundly lonely, that their isolation would not seem to increase.
that they could feel your presence. God, in your mercy. We have not loved you with all that we are. We have neglected to be grateful for the gifts of our life and breath, the worlds around us, our relationships, the ability to love and be loved. We confess that we've hurt people in our lives and people who pass through our lives by being overly focused on ourselves. We ask for your forgiveness and confident, are confident that you judge us with your grace. God, in your mercy. Meet us now in this extended time of silence. Amen. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. 
Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent. And in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. So I hope you had a nice epiphany season full of, I don't know, moments of clarity or transcendence, inside flashes of recognition, like, you know, epiphanies. I hope you experience the fullness of the season because we're about to move into Lent, which is all abstinence, fasting, deprivation, you know, Lent, the penitential season. Ash Wednesday is in three days with the whole remember you are dust and to dust you will return thing, which can be, I guess, a sort of epiphany. But it's just such a different sort of season, Lent. It's, it's not very exuberant. It's much more about finitude than dazzling. The season of bright sadness, it's called. And, I mean, sure, bring it on. Seems an appropriate place to move into these days in this world. I'll be grateful if the sadness can include even a speck of bright but you still have a few more days to get all you can out of Epiphany. 48 hours or so. Spend it well. Call down the Epiphanies while you still can. I mean, I don't really know if it works that way, if you can call them down, but, but maybe you can open yourself. I mean, I know that your neural pathways have lost some plasticity probably, Grooves have been established. <laughs> Your pineal gland has calcified. It just, it just does as you move out of childhood. It happens. So your imaginative capacities, they have almost certainly been diminished a bit over time. It's science. But there are ways to facilitate opening it up, decalcifying the pineal a little bit. Music. Meditation, yoga, psychedelics. This may not be liturgically correct exactly, but I'm pretty sure we could all benefit from a little shaking up of our increasingly stagnant neural networks. And it's, it's Transfiguration Sunday. It seems like a good day for opening, shifting. I don't know how it works. But you know, we're thousands of years away from the roots of our tradition. The practices, the, the materials, the ways of worship, the people who wrote the text that Richard read lived a long time ago. And they were drawing on knowledge and materials and ideas and practices from even way farther back. So I don't think it's that surprising if our reaction to this text, well, maybe I should speak for myself, if my reaction to this text is a little like, Seriously? This seems sort of dumb. The climax to the season of Epiphany is a story about Jesus glowing on a mountain, suddenly becoming super white. 
And that's supposed to be some wonderful, amazing, impressive thing, shining whiteness? I just don't think that image works very well in February in Minnesota in 2022. And Russia has just invaded Ukraine. People are dying. How nice that we can add another layer of instability to the state of the world, climate catastrophe, pandemic, failing democracy. Why not add the possibility of World War III? Jesus turns bright white on a mountain. It just seems kind of irrelevant. Like, my, what a shiny white nose you have. Who cares? Couldn't the transfiguration be a little more imaginative? Like, like more trans, maybe. Jesus transfigures into, like, Guadalupe with a cape full of roses and an indigenous brown-skinned goddess saying, am I not here who am your mother? Now that would be an epiphany. I mean, it's a lot to ask old stories from taken out of context to continue to feel relevant after thousands of years. But I guess that is really kind of my job. Not actually to mock the scripture, though mocking it is easier. Sometimes you have to dig, and, and I should thank John Linton and Margaret Barker this week for helping me find some good soil, and if I don't dig up what they thought I should, you know, it's not their fault. But The Bible is a very weird book with bazillions of references to ancient cultic practices and various, sometimes conflicting images of God that we barely have access to. Like there's one strand in the Old Testament that was emphatic that God could not be seen. And that's the strand that pretty much took over. But there was always another strand where it's clear in places and times Various people did see God, and God had a form. Not just a voice, but feet, lips, hands. God was not invisible. And though, like I said, this strand was kind of obscured, it seems like a lot of what went on in the original Hebrew temple had to do with making God visible. In the first reading for this Transfiguration Sunday, which we didn't read, it's a story about Moses going up to Mount Sinai to see God, to talk to God. And when he comes down after seeing God, his face is shining. It's like the light from God's face is so bright, it gives off so much brightness or something like that, that it, it was reflected in Moses' face. Like the brightness of God can't help but rub off on Moses. Moses' face is so shiny that he has to cover it up with a veil before he talks to people. And there's a lot of places, Isaiah, Psalms, where, where people behold the Shekinah, as it comes to be known, the glory of God, the shining forth, which, super beautifully cool in my opinion, could be construed as kind of trans. The Shekinah, the divine presence that dwells among humans, has often been seen as a feminine form, the motherly manifestation of God. At any rate, it was not particularly male. This light that dwells among humans, that shines forth, was a big deal. God shines forth from God's sanctuary. God is shining in Zion. Daniel had a vision of the shining light 
where masculine and feminine forms were mixed. Singular and plural forms were mixed. Some sort of fiery fourfold female figure, the living one surrounded by the brightness of a rainbow. A rainbow. Now I realize rainbow didn't have the same connotations then as it does now, but what the heck, I like it. Rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. If God could be seen was somehow visible, shining forth, it certainly was not an old man with a white beard. So all this at least makes me less apt to want to make fun of the shininess in the story on the mountain. Makes it seem less stale and uninspiring. Not that I get it, but there's some depth and some significance and and it seems beautiful, mysterious, meaningful illusions. God becomes visible in Jesus Christ, which is, of course, something we always say as Christians. But when you consider the context, the original temple practices, beliefs that had been sort of suppressed by the you-cannot-see-God camp, I don't know, it seems more exciting. In part for me, I'd have to say, because in their quest to solidify monotheism, the you-cannot-see-God camp determined to get rid of the feminine face of God. I mean, I barely understand it all, but, but it does make the transfiguration seem a lot more interesting. It might even potentially shake up some stagnant neural pathways, decalcify the pineal. At the risk of continuing to talk about things I don't understand, but, but really, what else does a preacher do? Margaret Barker, as I understand it, but I may be wrong, concludes, if concludes is the right word, that in the tr- original temple tradition, an important part of worship was to make the Lord shine, like bring forth the Shekinah. The Deuteronomist, that's the you can't say God camp, didn't like that. Interestingly, interestingly, in their account of the temple, the Deuteronomist, the you can't you see God camp, they don't even mention music. That's probably because the music was a big part of invoking God's presence. You can see traces of this in the Psalms where there seem to be actual instructions to the musicians that might read, make the Lord shine forth as if the musicians might be able to cause a Lord's face to shine, invoke God's presence. And so they sang. They sang with one voice, and then the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The music invited God to show God's self. Maybe, why not? Seems potentially totally true to me. There was always a strand of temple tradition that survived, even though suppressed by the Deuteronomists. The temple tradition, as it survived and developed during the Christian era, Kabbalah used ritual and even what we might perceive as magical practices to draw down the Shekinah. Weird. Magic-y, mystical, psychedelic even. Awesome. The temple tradition probably wouldn't have had 
wouldn't have seemed so foreign to the disciples. They were way closer to those old temple rituals than we've ever been. But it had probably been a while when the disciples and Jesus go up the mountain since this calling on the visible presence was a much-practiced ritual. It had probably gotten to a place where people didn't expect to see God. People had probably sort of given up on that. That sounds familiar. But in our story for tonight, Jesus on the mountain with his disciples, the glory of God shines forth big time. And I'm sure it didn't seem racist or stupid or irrelevant. The disciples don't call it down. They don't do something to make it happen. But, but Peter does seem to recognize, a little anyway, what's happening. He was acquainted with the tradition where God's glory could be seen. And he knew that it happened in the tabernacle. So he's like, let's build tabernacles. He gets the reference. Because this is where the presence of God shone forth, in the booth. He sees the Shekinah and he's like, let's build booths. But this was different than that. This was really God's presence, but it wasn't going to be confined to a booth or the temple or a tabernacle. It must have been really beautiful for the disciples and terrifying, like theophanies tend to be. Moses and Elijah appear. Certainly there's lots of interesting layers to that, but one might be a sort of, yes, this is me, the God of the law and the prophets. That's how you knew me then. This is how you'll know me now. And what they're talking about together, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, is Jesus' departure, his exodus, which will be, if it hasn't quite gotten through to people yet, a revelation of a love and a mercy so utterly without violence and violent power and vengeance, actually an emptying of a need for that sort of superiority that separates an us from them. Shorn entirely of the need for amassing power like Putin or police or corporate America, it will be a revelation of the glory of God that will actually be much humbler than people probably imagined possible that would rather be killed than kill. Rather be killed than manifest any wrath whatsoever. Jesus' departure will be a revelation of the deepest mercy, profound love, and it will be the farthest thing from self-aggrandizing. Jesus' exodus will be both old and new and mind-boggling. So, you know, we say a prayer of invocation every Sunday evening. And I like understanding that part of worship as coming from a time and a place that was way more ancient and mysterious than, say, the Lutheran book of worship. And, of course, the music is essential, an essential part of calling for the presence of God, making God's face shine. However mysterious and incomprehensible the whole thing is, it feels true to me. The love of God is reflected in the faces of those who have glimpsed it. I have seen it. I felt it coming off you, the light, the love. I think maybe I felt it or noticed it more 
after coming back from the pandemic hiatus. Like, at first it was like, no problem, I don't have to drive into church. I don't have to drive an hour and a half. This is great. But once we were back, I knew how much I'd missed it. Like, there really is something about being in the presence of a community that has glimpsed from time to time the love of God. It reflects off of you. I mean, maybe that sounds crazy, but maybe that's what happens when a community comes together around the mercy. Not like it's anything we're doing, like, aren't we good? But more like something rubs off on you, and you don't even have much to do with it, really, or maybe even know it exactly. Maybe you don't even know it's happening, but it's love. The love and the mercy of God. And if you've been in its presence, you can't help but reflect it. Unconditional love. You can't make it, but you can reflect it. And it makes something like that possible in the community gathered around the love of God. An unconditional love. It doesn't matter whether or not you're particularly likable or successful who you are or what you've done as an individual doesn't qualify you or disqualify you from the love. It's utterly indiscriminate. It's not something we work up ourselves. And oh my goodness, of course, it's not on nonstop all the time. We discriminate and we limit and we probably aren't very welcoming of the other a lot of the time, but I think in spite of ourselves, we have glimpsed the glory of God. We have been in the presence of mercy. And so it shines, or maybe flashes barely and dimly and momentarily in us. But I am grateful. I have felt loved here. Maybe it sounds a little bit like magic. Maybe it is. Maybe we are altered somehow in communion, opened up. So eat this and be transformed. You know, possibly. thought I am thinking concerning that great speckled bird remember her name is recorded on the pages of God's holy word there are many who lower her standard just want to find fault with her teachings though they search they can find no mistakes
cloud in the morning and his voice round the You've been listening to the House of Mercy podcast. You can experience all this live every Sunday at 5. Check out www.houseofmercy.org for all the details. House of Mercy is a church in St. Paul. You should come. It's not that bad. What a beautiful thought I am thinking Concerning that great speckled bird Oh, remember her name is recorded On the pages of God's holy word